this evening, uh, our study is a little bit different, but we're really beginning something that will hopefully take us somewhere, and we'll just have to wait and find out where it takes us. But where we begin is really a foundational question. What is the church? Who would ever ask that question? What is the church? We're Baptists. It's all right if you've asked that question before. I don't know if you realize this, but we care a great deal about what the church is. In fact, among those distinctives that make Baptists Baptist, most of them are about the church. We believe that the church is comprised of baptized believers. You have to be baptized or saved in order to be a member of a Baptist church. We believe that the church is local. We believe that the church is autonomous. All these distinctives that make Baptists who they are come back to the church. But it's even more true when we talk about the fact that at Denver Street Baptist Church, we're not just Baptist in a general sense, but we're BMA Baptist. We're part of the Baptist Missionary Association of America. We adhere to the doctrinal statement of the Baptist Missionary Association of America. And if you've taken the time to look at our doctrinal statement or what we believe, what you will find is we have given a disproportionately large amount of attention to what we believe about the church. I took the time this afternoon to tally up the words in our doctrinal statement of the 2,000-something words that are there. You can see we have a statement on who God is, a statement on scriptures, creation, who Satan is, what depravity is, all these various areas of theology. And we make our way to the church. Do you see what I mean by disproportionate amount of attention? And that's not a bad thing. In fact, I think it's a good thing. It goes to show how important understanding what the church is, is. It shows us how important it is to us as a people and why it ends up mattering. Now, when I look at this, it doesn't surprise me one bit, not just because we're Baptists, but because the BMA uh, came out of the Landmark Movement, Landmarkist Movement, and um, that might be a little bit more information than necessary, but it doesn't surprise me that we've paid so much attention to what the church is. But why does it matter that we get the doctrine of the church right? Now, looking at that list, aren't there other things that we would think would be more important? Isn't it more important that we know who God is? Isn't it more important that we know what salvation is? Don't you think there's other things up there that might deserve our attention? I'm not trying to say that any of these areas deserve more attention than the other. But I am saying, of all of these areas of study, if we get the church right, it will have the biggest consequence in the way that we engage in missions. The church has a purpose. The church has a vision and a plan and it has leadership and it has authority and all of these things. If we get the church right, not only do I think it will it affect the way that we do missions, but it also means that we've gotten all of these other areas right too. You can't have a proper understanding of the church if you don't know who God is. And when I look at this and I think about Heresy. Isn't that a fun word? Don't you guys love the word heresy? Do you like talking about heresy? 
Sometimes we overuse that word and we call anyone that disagrees with us a heretic. That is not what heresy means. It does not mean that they disagree with me. Heresy refers specifically to any belief or understanding that jeopardizes our personal salvation. A heresy is something that tells us a person is not saved. So understand that when I talk about heresy, I'm not talking about these are people I don't get along with, these are people I disagree with. I'm laying a charge of being outside of the family of God. Okay? It's a big word. Most of the time when we talk about heresy, we're talking about how we, who we understand God to be. But there are actually heresies that concern what the church is. One of the most prominent ones is pietism. It began in the 17th century in response to the Reformation. Um, most of the people, the reformers, so if you think back Martin Luther and John Calvin, all these different groups, most of the reformers were very intellectual, very nerdy. Gosh, I'm so tired of these kinds of people showing up throughout church history. And pietism was in response to this highly intellectual uh, way of approaching God, thinking about abstract <coughs> thoughts. So instead of doing all of that, let's be super emotional. Let's just focus on understanding. Um, instead of being intellectual, let's oppose knowledge. Let's make sure that I just do all of the right things in my life and I live a pious lifestyle. And as long as I do that, I know that I'm saved. And this personal relationship that I have with God is all that matters. The problem with pietism, what makes it heresy, is it presupposes that anyone that has any idea of who God is has been saved. If you know about God, then you've been saved according to pietism. Is that true? There's a lot of people that know about God that are not saved. As a matter of fact, there's a lot of people that know a lot about God that are not saved. What we know about God does not save us. Pietism is a heresy. It's condemnable. Another heresy that sticks out is universalism. This is the belief that the church is made up of essentially everyone. As long as they try to do their best, everyone winds up in heaven. This is a heresy. If we believe this, we do not put our faith in our Lord and Savior. We put our faith simply in God's good nature. Um, another heresy that I almost didn't even put in my list concerning the church, but... <coughs> Papal primacy. The Catholic Church believes that the Pope is the head of the church. Who's the head of the church? Jesus. If it's not Jesus, who are you following? The devil. Wow, that's, that's something. Sorry. That's, I was an inside thought. That was 1689 right there. I don't know if I'd go so far to call the Pope the Antichrist, but... I mean, you know... <laughs> <laughs> Papal primacy or any belief that the leadership of the church comes from anywhere on earth and is not Jesus Christ himself is heresy. If we're not following Christ, we can't really say we're Christian. The word Christian literally means follower of Christ. Uh, so I point that out just to point out that the doctrine of the church is important and there are errors that we can make. I want to talk, though, about the advantage of getting the church right. 
Getting the church right is at the core of missions. The Great Commission was given to... That's right, it was given to the church. The church... The church will only be healthy when we are following God's design for it. We might be able to do a lot of things and run a lot of programs. We might be able to make it look like we're healthy. We might even be able to run it like a business. But the church will only be spiritually healthy. It will only be physically healthy. It will only be healthy in all of the ways that matter if it is following God's design. When Paul, in Acts chapter 16, verse 5, traveled through and it began his second missionary journey, what was his goal but to return to the churches? that he had planted and established to encourage them in the word. The church is an important part of the gospel. I don't know if you realize this, but it comes all the way down to the gospel. When I teach people how to present the gospel, I normally use the acronym G-O-S-P-E-L. Because if you can remember how to spell gospel, you can remember how to present it. God in the beginning created everything, and he made it perfectly. The O... Our sin separated us from God. It damaged His perfect design. Sin, or the S, cannot be removed by any amount of good works. Once it's there, it's a scar. It can't be removed. It's a penalty that has to be paid. P stands for paid, because Jesus paid the penalty of sin, which is death on a cross. So that everyone, e everyone who puts their faith in Jesus Christ, would have eternal life with God. Those last two words are important. With God. If we don't know what we're being saved from or saved to, the gospel doesn't carry a lot of weight. When God created man in the garden, He created us in His image, which means that He made humanity different from the rest of creation, that we have the ability to bear a relationship not only with God, not only with creation, but with our fellow man. It's a big deal that God said something was not good before the fall. The one thing He said that was not good before the fall was that man would be alone. And women, that's not a dig on men. That's a dig on humanity. It's not good for us to be alone. The problem of sin is that it doesn't just separate us from God, but it separates us from all of these various different areas of the world. It separate, damages our relationships. It makes it harder for us to conduct these relationships. It makes it harder for us to care for the world that we're in. It damages all of this. Do you know what salvation actually saves us to? a restored relationship with God so that we can live in a restored, perfect community with each other. Listen, heaven's not just going to be a one-on-one -on -one meeting with your Creator and yourself. You're going to be elbow to elbow, shoulder to shoulder with the people that, we, that serve God together. Getting the church right is getting the gospel right. I look at this chart and I realized just how important the doctrine of the church has been, not only to the BNA, but to Baptist in general, and I think ultimately to the church. The sad truth is, it's become a neglected doctrine. One of my heroes, John Stott, said, 
One of our chief evangelical blind spots has been to overlook the central importance of the church. We tend to proclaim individual salvation without moving on to the saved community. We emphasize that Christ died for us to redeem us from all iniquity rather than to purify for himself a people of his own. We think ourselves more as Christians than as churchmen. And our message is more good news of a new life than of a new society. Guys, there's many false concepts that have presented themselves when we think of the word church. First one's pretty obvious, and I think you all already know this one. Do you know what happens if you type in the word church in Google and you search it? You know what images you get back? The church is not the building. It's the people. I think we all know that. Do we understand the significance of it? The church is a community that we have been called into. Well, there's other things that have become neglected as we think about this word. The, the issue of the church being universal or invisible. And we'll talk about that in a little bit more because I think it's important that we understand those terms. The people confuse what the church is with what the kingdom of God is. These are two completely separate concepts. The church is not the kingdom, and the kingdom is not the church. They're separate ideas. If we desire what God desires, if we desire to see the lost become saved, we must abandon our tendency towards hyper-individual religion and replace it with an understanding of what it means to be adopted into God's family. When I say hyper-individualism, I mean the trend that has been increasing more and more and more, especially with the rise of social media and the way that people are using it. We do not think of ourselves as a part of a group. We don't. Even Christians struggle to think of themselves as a part of a group. We would rather be individuals and place all of the value in our individuality than the people that we belong to. Friends, can I remind you of something? When we get baptized, we baptize as a form of identifying with a local community. If our baptism isn't being identified with a local community, it doesn't mean much. That's why it's a means to church membership. Anyways, all these things we'll talk about later. The church ultimately is not the Savior. That is, only Jesus Christ is the Savior. But the church is the mother of the saved. The church is the mother who births and nurtures its children on the gospel. Nicholas Perrin attributed our neglect of this doctrine to our tendency towards hyper-individualism, like I mentioned. We have developed the ability to look at the church simply as the weekly meeting of Jesus' Facebook friends. I hope that's not true. Honoring and appreciating the doctrine of the church means recognizing that the church exists as a means of God's grace for the company of the gospel. All of that out of the way by introduction to talk about why we treasure the church, how we've neglected it, and why we shouldn't neglect it. What then is the church? There's four prominent views, theories or different ways of thinking about what the church is. And I want to give them all to you because I want you to understand how this conversation's taken place. The first one 
is that the church is universal and visible. What do these words mean? It's all right if you don't understand them at first. I promise they're not difficult to understand. One of the reasons they are foreign to us is because this type of phraseology comes from the 10th century. So it's old. To say that the church is universal and visible means that it includes all people who have ever received Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. And that they are visible, which means you can see them and touch them in this world. This is the idea that gives rise to the concept that you have to be a member of a church in order to go to heaven. Is that true? It's not true. I do not believe this view of the church is accurate or biblical. Second view is that the church is universal and invisible. That means that the church is made up of everyone who has ever placed their faith in God, but wouldn't it be impossible to get all those people together in the same place at the same time? I mean, think about it. Everyone that's believed in God, doesn't that include everyone who's died in God and everyone who's yet to be born in God? Well, that means that it's invisible because it cannot truly be seen. The problem is, I believe the church is gathered. In fact, the Greek word ekklesia means gathered. I don't believe that this is a biblical view of the church. The one that most Protestants lean towards is that the church is universal and local, which means that it exists in two parts. It includes everyone that has accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior and that it's also a local body. And I said that most Protestants believe this. I think it's a compromise, and I mean that in a pejorative way. I mean that as a put-down uh, between these other prominent views. Are Baptists pr- Protestant? Just as a side note, no. we're not Protestant? No. Well, I thought that there was Catholics and Protestants. What do you mean Baptists aren't Protestants? We didn't come from a Catholic church. That's right. Baptists did not come from the Protestant Reformation. Therefore, we are not Protestants. I believe that the church is simply local and visible. Now, this is important. I believe that we are called to a particular local body of believers. And that as a local body of believers, we can be seen and interacted with. The BMA doctrinal statement says that a New Testament church is a local congregation of baptized believers in Jesus Christ who are united by covenant and belief of what God revealed and in obedience to what He has commanded. That is... uh, Section 7, Article 7, Section A of the BMA Doctrinal Statement. To answer the question, what is the church? Um, The church according to the Bible, we really have to understand this word and its origin. You see, the word church wasn't made up. We had to pull it from somewhere. Have you ever tried to to describe something that didn't have a word for it? You call it a thingamajob or a, a doohickey? Oh, wait, Doohickey, that's pastor of Westwood. My bad. Um, In the New Testament, whenever they were writing, they didn't make up the word for church. They borrowed it from society. And it gives us a lot of insight, not only into what God intended the word to be, but it gives us some insight into what the church actually is. The word is, and you all probably already know it, 
ecclesia. So, ecclesia. You ever seen that word before? You heard it before? Gathering. What? It's gathering. It's gathering. Good job. Yeah, it's a gathering. The, the word's actually a compound word, right? It comes from two other words. Man, I don't know why the Greeks like to do this, but it sure does make it easy to understand what a word means. It's made up of two parts. The first part is the preposition ek. The second part is the verb kaleo. Kaleo is the verb that means I call. It's to call on something. Ek is a preposition means out of. So I pull something out of. Ekklesia literally means called out of. There's not a lot of ways to split that any other direction. This is literally what the word means. But it had a particular function in the first century. It had a particular function in Greek society. Uh, the church, the word, um, and, and this is really going to be the meat of our study for this evening, and then we'll pick up from this next week, but the word ecclesia literally means called out of, and it has a particular function in Greek society. First, when we look at the word ecclesia or the way that it's used, it has its secular uses. And you actually don't have to leave the Bible to know this. You don't have to be a scholar in ancient Near Eastern, blah, 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 blah. You don't have to leave the Bible. If you turn to Acts chapter 19, verses, the verse 32, we find an example of this secular use. Let me remind you what's going on in Acts chapter 19. Paul and the missionaries have just arrived in Ephesus. This is at the end of his second missionary journey. And everything's fine in Ephesus until people start getting saved. Because when people start getting saved, they stop buying idols from the silversmith. And whenever people start losing money, they start complaining. So the silversmith, putting all of this together, that his, uh, the people that were buying idols from him, from the, from the temple for Apollo, stopped coming to him. He pitched a fit, and he got together an assembly. Look at Acts 19, verse 32. Does someone have that, that they could read it? That word assembly used in that verse is the word ecclesia. Is Dr. Luke writing about a church? <clears throat> is Dr. Luke in that passage writing about the church? He's writing about a mob of people in Ephesus that have raised up. They're called out from their various positions, and now they're, they, they're instigating a riot because Paul has made upheaval in the city. It has a secular use. In one way, ecclesia simply refers to any gathering. That's why we know it can't be invisible. That's why we know it can't be universal. There's also the functional purpose of it in the first century. If you jump back to Acts chapter 17... Let me just read these 10 verses. Um, actually, I don't want to read the 10 verses. If you look at Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 10, what you find is that when Paul and Silas arrived in Thessalonica, there was a really weird government structure in Thessalonica. How many of you are fans of democracy? Does anyone, anyone want to raise your hand? You think that's pretty great? 
Uh, real quick, pop quiz, and you, and you won't get a grade on this. The points are all made up, like whose line is it anyways. Is the United States of America a democracy? No. That's right. It's a republic. Because democracies don't work. What's the difference between a democracy and a republic? Right, everyone gets a vote. Now, can you imagine if in the United States, every single person who had a right to vote had to vote on every bill that currently runs through Congress? The logistics alone would be a nightmare. So there's this happy medium. Government by representation, right? This is the brilliance of our forefathers, y'all. Get excited about it. In Thessalonica, they had a unique government structure because you see as Paul and them were getting arrested in these first 10 verses and they were being charged with causing upheaval and uh, one of the charges was even uh, usurping Caesar's authority. There's three levels of government. First, there is the the citizen assembly, that is the demos, where we get the word democracy. Because in a city, you can let everyone get together and make these decisions. On a larger scale, it all falls apart. But in a city, you can. And so you have the citizen structure, and they would have been responsible for making the day-to-day decisions and transacting business. Then there's a second level, and this is kind of what we've done with our republic. There was a council. So there's a second level of government, and they function kind of like the executive branch. They didn't get to do whatever they wanted, but they got to do and carry out whatever the citizen council told them to do. They got to make recommendations. So you think of this like a church business meeting. It would not be a lot of fun if the entire church had to come together to make the church budget. So what do we do instead? We have a committee, and their responsibility is to present to the church body a budget that they've done the work of preparing, and then the church votes to approve that. So the church still has authority. There's a third level of... of, um, Authority in Thessalonica, which is just remarkably strange. But they have the politarchs as well, or these would have... Um, it's just weird. I, I really can't imagine living in this world. But So they had the politarchs, which had ultimate local responsibility. And you see at the end of verse 8, whenever Paul and Silas are brought before them, the charge that Caesar's getting involved, it's not just the city authorities that were disturbed when they heard these things, verse 8, but because the city authorities heard this, this is in reference to that third level of government. This is why Paul and Silas were eventually kicked out of Thessalonica very quickly. So there's this general sense of the word ecclesia, all of these different groups of people coming together for a particular purpose. Well, there's also general uses, and, and I, this is a little bit easier. When we think of ecclesia, we don't think of city councils, do we? What do we think of? The church. should have warned you that this was going to be an academic evening. I'm sorry. It's important. The foundation we're laying is important, I promise. When I hear the word ecclesia, I hear it referenced specifically to the church. But there's a general use. There's a general use whenever we talk about the church. Key example would be Matthew chapter 18, where Jesus is teaching on the issue of church discipline. 
And he says, if you have an issue with your brother, you should go and confront your brother one-on-one. If he doesn't hear you, then you should bring somebody else with you. If he doesn't hear you again, you should bring him before the church. What church is he talking about? A people? Any people? He's, he's talking about a church. But in a general sense, not a particular church, right? He's not talking about the church in Jerusalem. He's not talking about the church in Antioch. He's talking about take them to the church that is appropriate. This is one of the reasons why we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that the church is local and visible. You cannot bring under church discipline somebody that is not a member of your church. Church discipline, touchy subject. I know a lot of people don't like that, but if you want a healthy church, you have to practice healthy church discipline. You can't bring under church discipline somebody that is a member of a church in a different city. You just can't. It doesn't make sense. What Paul's using when he uses um, in Matthew 18, he uses church as, when Jesus uses church in the general sense, it's the difference between, well, I think of it like this. I can talk about marriage without necessarily talking about Michelle and I's marriage or talking about uh, Lane and Deanne's marriage. I can talk about marriage in a general sense, right? That's what Jesus is doing. He's using it in a general sense. He's still referring to a particular congregation. Then there's the specific sense, and I could give you some examples on this, or I could just tell you the numbers, which is a lot easier to convey which one gets used the most in the New Testament. Because the word church shows up 115 times, 90 of those times are specific references to churches. If you break it down, 17 of the references refer to a particular locality, so that would be like calling us people of the Ozarks or Greenwoodians. I don't know what you call Greenwood citizens. I like Greenwoodians. I think we should... If that's not it, we should launch a campaign to make that stick. This is a particular locality. 35 times it refers to a plural group of individual churches. Think the letter to the churches of Galatia. Galatia wasn't a city. It was an entire region. 38 times, so 90 times in total, When the word church is used in the New Testament, it is referring to a specific local body. That's like writing to the church of Denver Street in Greenwood, Arkansas. The final way that it is used is the universal sense. Wait a second. Didn't I say the church isn't universal? What do you guys think? Turn to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 18. I'm going to go ahead and read uh, all the way through to verse 24. For you have not come to what may be touched a blazing fire and darkness and the gloom and the tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of whose, the voice whose, hurt, whose words made the hearers beg that no further message be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. 
Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels and festal gatherings, and to the, verse 23, that word assembly is the word ecclesia, the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The universal church is being referenced in Hebrews 12. Can I point something out? This church exists in heaven, on Mount Zion. It's local, and it's also visible. This is all the saints from all time gathered together in God's glory. And when we all get to heaven, isn't it going to be great? The Bible, I think, is pretty clear on what the church is. The opportunity that we have is really not about understanding this in an intellectual sense or being able to break it down and define what the church is. The opportunity that we have is, are we willing to give up our personal identity for the church? It's God's plan. God doesn't have a plan B. We're talking about heresies. Another heresy is the idea that good and evil are constantly at war with one another in this world. Did he know good and evil are not at war with each other in this world? God already won. The ending's already written. A lot of people have the concept of God and Satan's in the middle of a chess match, and every once in a while Satan gets the upper hand and bad things start to turn. That's not the case. Satan is bound. He has lost. God has a plan, and he only needs one plan. His plan for seeing the entire world come into salvation is the church. He doesn't have a plan B. He doesn't want people going rogue. He doesn't want people uh, living, uh, trying to pursue God's will by themselves. He calls us into community for specific purposes. I know tonight's been real boring. It's been a boring look at, at what the church is. But let me tell you why this is so foundational. Because when we begin to understand that the church is a community of believers and we begin to understand what it means that we are a part of that community of believers, then we begin to look at what the church is here for. And we begin to look at its purposes and its design and, and what God's plan is in all of this. I said at the very beginning of this, the church will only ever be healthy whenever we live according to God's design for us. You want to see a healthy church? You want to see a healthy and vibrant spiritual life in every person that you come in contact to with the moment that you walk in the doors of this building? Understanding the church is how that happens. It starts with, it starts with saying, who I am as an individual doesn't matter anymore because I belong to Jesus Christ. That's a hard message to deliver to Americans. 
It really is. I've probably said that 3,200 different ways, and I still feel like it's never landed. Our personal identity isn't just a secondary issue. It's a non-important issue that gets in the way of our relationship and our ability to pursue Jesus Christ. That's all I have for you guys this evening. But I want to leave you with one thought. When we all get to heaven and we're a part of this universal church that we look forward to in Hebrews 12, will there be anything for us to boast in? Will there be anything for us to say we did well? What will Jesus say to us when we finally meet him face to face? Don't we look forward to hearing, well done, my good and faithful servant? There will be things for us to boast in in heaven. There are such things as heavenly treasures that we get to build up. A lot of people work their entire lives to have treasures on earth. Listen, you can build up treasures in heaven. Paul wrote to the church of Thessalonica in 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 19. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at His coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. When He says you, He's talking to a specific church. There are going to be treasures in heaven and you can put them there today by committing to the church, by being a part of missions and planting churches, by serving the church that you currently belong to. How can we do that if we don't know what the church is? I'd like to give you some homework for next week. If you could, list out all of the ministries you can possibly think of at Denver Street Baptist Church. Every single one of them. And then put a star next to all of the ones that you're involved in. That's it. I'll see you all next week. Let's pray and be dismissed. Father in heaven, I thank you so much for your church. God, I thank you so much for bringing us together. Lord, I delight in your word. And I am amazed what you have inspired Paul to write in Ephesians chapter 3. God, angels are rejoicing because of what you have created. The mysteries of, of this world had not been revealed until the formation of the church, but at the moment that your son came into this world and called out from among men, 12 disciples, Lord, the angels rejoiced. I pray that I would be a people who rejoice. Father, I pray that you would direct your church, that you would give power to her ministries. I pray that your will would be done in each of our lives and that you would bless each person that is here this evening. I pray that you would meet their need in abundance, giving them the desires of their heart. Most importantly, Lord, that you would give them a desire for you. And I pray that you would help us all as we live our lives this week, that we would stay aware of you and serve you and glorify you, and that you would bring us together again soon, whether that is in this place or in our universal church in the New Jerusalem. 
In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Can I say something? Yes, please.